what's the one area if you could change people's perception what's the one area around ai that you would want them to change their perception around and what would you replace it with i don't care for the fear-mongering that's happening the media particularly and there are certain parties who benefit from creating fear in the marketplace i don't like the fear-mongering so that's I want people to embrace artificial intelligence, to see it as a tool to make themselves more productive, to regain time for whatever they want to do with their lives. I, I want to, to reduce the fear and get people to act on their own behalf. So don't be frozen by the fear. Do something. Learn. Uh- I heard this morning that whilst ChatGPT was the fastest uptake of any piece of technology in history, still only 14% of the US population is using it. Wow. Which gives you an indication of just how much scope there is. Well, I mean, whether they have the capacity to handle much more growth because then um, you know the throttling issues and everything else. But that's just a matter of investment in infrastructure, isn't it? Uh, first, that that statistic is shocking. I did not know that. I know that there's a lot of concern that AI is going to take our jobs. AI is going to ruin the economy. There's a myriad of different massive, now, you know, just this week, it was compared to either a pandemic or nuclear, you know, nuclear war. If we look at the sources of the original message that uh, triggered that cascade of fear-mongering in each of those cases? Where do, what do we normally find? In history, we have seen from a technology perspective, the same, this exact same cycle is followed over and over again, irregardless of what the technology is. And we see the people that are going to financially benefit from creating a moat around their existing, let's call it an an advanced engagement in the technology. So first mover advantage in many ways, they wanna protect that. And so there are people that financially benefit from scaring the public, from getting more regulation put in place than is probably needed at that particular juncture because regulation forces out competition. The smaller players, startups, et cetera, don't have the money to compete in an environment where regulations are rampant. And so anytime that I see that I see the big players from a financial perspective, the big players pushing for regulation, in my mind, that is their way of throwing up one more barrier for any competition against them. Well, it's interesting because I think one of the big challenges that we're going to face is regulators being able to produce good regulation and prevent abuse. Because the problem that we do have is that a very small number of people have the potential to skew markets because of their incredible wealth and power and influence through lobbying. And I think where it's likely to go horrifically wrong 
is in the intersection between the, the greed of the people behind the lobbyists um, and the greed of the politicians versus the best interests of using this. And my, my fear is that it will then be driven out, you know, much like, um, you know, uh, women in the Middle Ages were burnt at the stake for uh, treating people with herbs. I think this is largely the same. We're going to just throw sticks and stones at what we're uncertain about because the brain's default setting wherever there is uncertainty is the worst case scenario. And I think what we need is clarity. So maybe our agenda here is give certainty about what we know and we can control and recognize what is outside of our control and what the probabilities are. Because the, um, I think heuristics is playing a huge part because we, you know, we, we're familiar with the matrix and um, all this Armageddon stuff. But the idea that it's just simply going to make people's lives substantially better by eliminating all the noise and crap and uh, the automation of you know, manual stuff to free up people to do higher value activity. We had this with the spinning Jenny. It's not like this is a new problem. So I, I agree with you that focusing on what is within our control is the most productive thing to do with our time. I do want people to stay informed, stay aware of what's going on, but don't get dragged into the emotional drama that's being created by the, the combination of the media People ask me all the time, why, why is there so much negativity about AI in the media? And I said, well, when's the last time that you read something that was positive coming out of the media? It's the same thing as anything else. You just notice. That sells, sells advertising and papers. That's exactly right. So just remember that when you are seeing and hearing these things about all of this negativity around artificial intelligence, first of all, AI has been around since the 1950s. So this lack of understanding of the fact that it's not brand new. We are not in completely unchartered territory here. There are things that you are using every day and have used every day for years that are driven by artificial intelligence. When you log into Amazon and it presents uh, it presents things that it knows that you would like through a recommendation engine. That recommendation engine is powered by artificial intelligence. When you pick up your iPhone and you talk into it and talk to Siri, that is powered by artificial intelligence. When you uh, get an automated ticket in the mail because you were speeding or you went past a stop sign without stopping, that automated ticket, that whole process is powered by a form of, of artificial intelligence. So it's in us, it's in our environment, it's around us, it's been there for years. There is no reason for this massive panic that's happened. What we're seeing is a an opportunity, this is an inflection moment because of the awareness that has been created by the release of ChatGPT. It is an inflection moment that is allowing people who are going to financially benefit from either working with it or working against it. There are financial benefits there. So just keep that in mind when you see things in the media, when you hear a lot of the things that make you that make you afraid, just really keep the overall context of the situation in mind. 
And with that, so you do stay informed and you do stay engaged, but let's let's boil this down to some practicality. What does it mean to your industry? What does it mean to the business that you either own or run or work in? And what does it mean to you as an individual? So those are the three kind of tiers that I like to talk to people about. Let's let's really dig into what are the repercussions at these three different levels, because those are things that impact each one of us and our families every day. My guest today is Dr. Lisa Palmer. Lisa is an old friend of the show. She's been on several times and she's just got her PhD in artificial intelligence. I'll let her explain the ins and outs of it because I'm too stupid. In the meantime, uh, Lisa, welcome. Thank you for having me, Marcus. It's always a pleasure. I love our chats. (laughs) Today, we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence and why It's not something that we should be hysterically afraid of. Um, There are repercussions and consequences to its misuse, but we're going to explore those. We're going to explore the upside. We're going to explore the benefits of it and why there is not the the need for panic that is being created by the media hysteria and actors like Elon Musk, who one day says that we should be regulating artificial intelligence and then announces his own robotics company, which is powered by AI. So the hypocrisy of it all, uh, we're going to dig into as well. Lisa, would you mind just giving two minutes on your history? Because um, you've obviously got a fairly illustrious sales career and a leadership career. And now you've got the technology and the AI on top. So you've got a very interesting range of skill. And I'd like people to understand a bit more about that. Happy to do so, Marcus. So I like to tell people that I see the world through a multifaceted lens. I started my career as an IT practitioner, and I worked in everything from infrastructure to application development, project management, uh, customer, uh, customer support, and ultimately culminated in a chief information officer combined role with a chief marketing officer role in a financial services organization. So that's sort of the practitioner lens that I see the world through. I also spent a significant amount of time as as an enterprise seller for technology companies. So companies like Microsoft and and Splunk, for example, from a, a software perspective. And then I ran half of executive programs for Gartner, working directly with executives to help them to apply technology to their environments. How how could we take what we knew from a research perspective at Gartner and help them to apply that to transform their businesses? So I had approximately 900 customers in my purview in that role. And it was a very interesting way to get a cross-sectional view into multiple industries, multiple types, of leaders and the challenges that they face. Every culture in every environment is different. And that is what is a key under, you know, underpinning concept to things that impact us and our ability to adapt over time. So my my most current lens is I undertook a doctoral program in artificial intelligence And I have had people ask me, Marcus, why did you do this at the moment you did it? 
people think that it's just shocking that I happened to just wrap up my doctorate right at the time when artificial intelligence is exploding. And I have to chuckle a bit because people like to assume that I was just brilliant and had some level of foresight that I knew that it was going to happen at this moment in time. Uh, when I look back at that, I was actually a woman in technology facing my 50s and thinking that I really needed to do something to differentiate myself. I wanted to create a next act in my career that would really allow me to continue to make an impact, to take these combined experiences that I've had in my life and apply them in some way that would matter in the world. You know, I'm at a point in my life where I want to do work that creates an impact. I want to help people. I want to leave a legacy that matters. And when I looked at the environment at that point, I saw that artificial intelligence really should be on the cusp of being widely embraced. I believed that wholeheartedly. And it was something that I was passionate about. I saw that the impact that, that AI could have on our future. And so I dug in. Now, as far as did I have any idea that it was going to explode <laughs> on November 30th of last year, right before I was wrapping up, had no idea that was going to happen, but it has worked out uh, brilliantly on my behalf at this point. I'm delighted for you. So tell me this, then. Why shouldn't we fear AI? Artificial intelligence is incredibly powerful, and I won't deny that it is, but it is not sentient. We don't, we are not at the point where we have to be concerned that artificial intelligence is going to have human feelings and really truly be able to replicate human creativity and human interactivity. So I think that it's important for people to remember that artificial intelligence is in what we call a narrow AI state. And being in a narrow AI state means that it's really good at doing specific task-oriented activities. And the, the part that we hear really talked about broadly in the media is artificial general intelligence. And this is when hypothetically machines would be able to understand and learn and behave just as a, just as a human would do so, in addition to having that kind of emotional awareness. So there's a very big difference between what actually is possible with artificial intelligence today and what the science fiction fears are around artificial intelligence for the future. So there was the documentary, The Social Dilemma, and the two blokes who did that have recently released another video talking about AI. And one of the case studies they cited was the week before they were due to do their talk, they discovered that the AI had taught itself research chemistry. When they looked back, Apparently, it had started two years ago and no one had known. So again, allay people's concerns about why we shouldn't be worried about this or maybe uh, open the discussion up to a challenge to see why we should. So just to be clear, Marcus, I do absolutely believe we need to regulate this technology. We need to be, behave responsibly with it. I work directly in, in my consulting practice. I work directly with 
customers helping them to put guardrails in place that ensure that they are behaving responsibly and that they are using the technology in a way that it well serves humanity. And that's that's what I focus people on is let's make sure that the technology is designed and operating in a way that well serves humanity. So I absolutely believe it needs to be regulated and that we need to decide as a society what is acceptable. And that is the piece that is really where we're at today that I'd like people to focus on. If you're interested in policy and if you're interested in making a a tangible difference in what happens over the long term, think about that. Think about what we can do to make sure that society is well served by technology and what are those parameters that we want to put in place where we agree that these are the things that it needs to do or these are the things it needs not to do. So think about that. Let's establish those norms of what would be acceptable. And where we often see people kind of get off track in these conversations is there's a lot of conversation. This is my perspective, Marcus. There's a lot of conversation about explainability and transparency, and it gets very technical very quickly. And the reason that this is so hard for people to understand is because artificial intelligence does not work like standard programming. So when we think about standard when we think about standard programming, we think about a coder, you know, sitting at a sitting there and telling a computer step by step what we want it to do. That's classic computer coding that people understand. Artificial intelligence doesn't work the same way. Artificial intelligence works through being tra- using models that are trained on a set of data. So the AI is not given explicit instructions of what to do. Rather, it learns from the data that it's trained on. And that's the reason why people get very confused about why we can't just simply, you know, tell AI to stop doing what it's doing or design it specifically to behave in in a way that they are accustomed to with traditional coding. So that difference is really important for people to understand. It doesn't work like classic computer programming. It learns. So we need to put those guardrails around it. Now, once you understand that we need to put the guardrails around it, then let's use it as much as possible. We can use it to cure cancer. We can use it to address climate concerns. We can use use it to really solve these hard, complex, super difficult problems that we have uh, as a global community. So I am, despite all of the negativity that we hear, I'm super excited about artificial intelligence and the potential it has at a global level to solve those kinds of problems at an industry level for us to really dig into what's possible across financial services and healthcare and manufacturing and, and retail I'm excited about what potential it has for your individual business and for each of us as individual contributors. Well, the the thing that's blown me away is the potential for synthesis. So I'm using it to build prompts to help salespeople and to help managers and so on. 
And what I've realized is that if you ask it really good questions and you give it great context, it goes to just the right bits of the internet and comes back with fantastic responses. And then you can finesse it by having it disagree with you, which is one of my favorite functions. And I can have a panel of investors or buyers or uh, chief revenue officers or lawyers, um, and I can have them pick my hypothesis to pieces before I practice in front of the customer. I can use it as a tool for role play so I can self-coach. Now, the limitation at the moment really is, I think, the interface and lack of imagination, because the way most people are using it is exceptionally bland. They're going one, maybe two levels deep with their questioning. The context they're providing is exceptionally weak. So let's talk about what you can do to squeeze the best out of this kind of technology. Let's look on the upside, first of all, and then we can start thinking about how we can regulate to ensure that we deliver that kind of outcome. Well, first of all, I, I agree with everything you just said, Marcus. It's all in the nuance of how you interact with, and this is specifically for generative AI. So when we're talking about using large language models to our benefit. So people are the most comfortable or the most aware of chat GPT as, as a uh, model that they're interacting with. I personally use about uh, six different models on a daily basis. Because it, to your point about really using specific prompts and challenging it to give you, I like to ask it to give me an oppositional viewpoint it, because it helps me really think deeply through what do I believe about this particular topic? How is How can I talk about this in a way that will resonate with a particular audience who has a particular level of understanding or a particular background. You can do that with these language models. What I love about using various language models, so Ask Sage is one of my favorites. I like to I like to use Dragonfly, Neva AI, Anthropics, Constitutional AI is both fascinating and it's also gets into that guardrails piece. And we can talk about that in here in a few minutes, but their model is called Claude. And it, there are several of these different models. So what I love to do is I have an app on my phone called Poe and Poe has access to these six different language models all embedded right in the one interface. And once I get a prompt created that I really like, I will take that prompt and try it in one language model and see what the results are. And then I'll pop that prompt over into a different language model and see what it looks like in there. They're trained on completely different data sets. So they're, and the models that, are, that they're built with are different. So the answers that you get are nuanced and different. So I often will take a compilation of results that I get from different language models to help me to build out presentations, build out thought leadership content, really dig into how do I think and how do I want to position different topics. So that is a very powerful way to interact with a treasure trove of data that is 
we can dig through it using just regular content content questions. And we, don't, so we don't have to know some you, special way to ask it. It is Pope effectively providing you with access to real-time internet data. So that bypasses the two-year cutoff uh, GPT? No, Poe is giving you access to the capability in those multiple language models in their uh, in their inherent state. So for chat GPT that stopped in September of 21, that's still what you're getting when you work through Poe. It's just a matter of accessing. It's a super quick way for me to access multiple language models, uh, all mo from mobile. Okay, interesting. And so if we look at the ways people are using AI now in their day-to-day -day work, what are the sort of ubiquitous uses that we've been using for years and years and years that we're probably not even aware of? So some of the things that we interact with on a daily basis are Siri on your iPhone. Siri is powered by artificial intelligence. If you use online shopping from Amazon or from Walmart or whoever your online retailer is, you are using a recommendation engine. When it pops up and says, oh, you bought this last time, you'll probably like this product or you might like that product. Those recommendation engines are powered by artificial intelligence. If you get a speeding ticket in the mail, that speeding ticket, the automated ticket was all made possible. That process is all enabled by artificial intelligence and pattern recognition that recognized the tag on your car and knew that that tag was associated with your address. And there you go, that, uh, that ticket comes in the mail. So we have been inundated with uses of artificial intelligence around us for years. We just didn't know that that's what it was. Okay. So can you explain the difference between machine learning and artificial intelligence? Because I think that seems to be a sticking point for a lot of people. And where are we really? Are we in artificial intelligence or are we more in machine learning? So... It, it depends on the situation, but machine learning is a category of artificial intelligence. So just like if we were to talk about ice cream, ice cream is the equivalent of AI. And if we talk about chocolate ice cream, then machine learning is the chocolate ice cream equivalent. It's just a type of artificial intelligence. When we talk about generative AI, generative AI is using these this type of machine learning it to allow us to interact using natural language processing, which is another kind of artificial intelligence. So NLP, natural language processing, it allows us to use our typical language just so we sit down and type in a question in the way that makes sense in our minds. It is using a combination of, of machine learning and natural language processing to be able to bring back to us these fantastic answers to questions that we pose. So when you hear the term artificial intelligence, it's a, it's a giant umbrella term for many, many types of specific, of specific activities of different subsets of artificial intelligence. So I will often in conversation with people just ask questions to figure out exactly what they're talking about. 
So I'll give you another example. Computer vision uh, is often used in manufacturing. So computer vision can look at a manufacturing line and be able to see if a product coming off the line has a defect. So it knows what a good quality product looks like. And if a product is coming off the manufacturing line that doesn't look like the proper quality, it can stop the manufacturing line. So instead of them creating a, a whole series of bad parts that would ultimately have to be recalled later, mm -hmm. then instead they can stop it right at that source. And that's using computer vision. And that is another type of artificial intelligence. So there's lots of different kinds. Okay, so we, we've got the um, the likes of Elon Musk uh, out there sort of um, bleating about how we should regulate and then bring his own artificial intelligence company out the following day. The noise and the hypocrisy around all of this feels like there are other agendas at work. And all of that is outside of our control. So um, in my dotage, I've begun to recognize that positive acceptance of stuff that's out of your control is a wise thing to, uh, to do and to focus on what we can control. Given those constraints and given that context, if you were advising someone who was just starting on their AI journey and they're in sales or they're in management, what guiding principles can they use in order that they are doing good and it's serving them in getting the job done. Right. So invest in yourself, invest in your own education. If you lead a team, invest in your team's education. Make sure that you know what tools are available for you to use. There are a litany of tools available today that are completely free in many situations or very inexpensive in others for you to raise your game from a performance perspective. So that's the first thing. Uh, to give you context, in a 60-day period, so between April and May, over 1,200 new artificial intelligence tools hit the market, right? Over 1,260 days. So you can find tools that are going to help you raise your game. So uh, don't, perfect is the enemy of good. Mm -hmm. So look for tools that will help you raise your game, learn how to use them, you will learn through that process. You can look for a different tool if you, as you learn more and get more comfortable, you don't have to commit to something forever. But think about this as a lifelong learner journey. And those who do it early are going to be winners in a very short period of time and certainly winners over the long haul. So invest in yourself from an education perspective. That means that you've got to embrace the discomfort of doing things differently. So I tell myself this every day. I sit down and if I start to do something that's basically a muscle memory response, that's the way I have done my work for years, I force myself to break my own pattern. I quite literally sit back in my chair and ask myself, how could I do this differently in partnership with AI? And if you, if you need to put a sticky note in front of yourself, uh, if you need to put a reminder on your calendar, ask yourself that question, pause, and it will change your life.
Well, we, we've launched a program, uh, ChatGPT for sellers, specifically because we're seeing so many salespeople unable to do the preparation. And I fundamentally believe that every buyer deserves salespeople who are well prepared, well rehearsed and practiced, and thoroughly provocative. I mean, that you know, I, I don't want a salesperson who's going to come up and vomit features. I can look that up. I don't need them. Siri can replace them. What I need is a salesperson who's going to stretch my understanding and help me understand what the causes of my problems might be and how uh, I might change and what the better future possibilities might look like. What I don't need is someone who's trying to dip their hand in my pocket. So we put this program together where we've, we look at the threats and weaknesses that you have going forward and trying to understand those, and then looking at where your strengths and opportunities are, then we look at why the financial business case that you build is so critical. And then we go into knowing your customer, being able to use the AI to unpick the minutiae of an individual human being's psychology over time, because you can track, you can put in commentary and uh, content and speeches and uh, transcripts from quarterly uh, uh, analyst calls and all that kind of stuff to get a tracking of sentiment, emotion, the pressure, whether the pressure is going up or down, listen to when they stumble. And I cannot wait for voice to be part of the, uh, the language set. And then understanding the industry and the competition so that you can put together a hypothesis that speaks directly. And we're now talking about an era where you can genuinely hyper-personalize. Yeah, and everyone's been talking about it for years, and it's not been personalization. It's just been finding lots of people who you put into a crappy persona and get it wrong a lot of the time. Well, with this, you can pinpoint exactly the language. You can mirror their language. You can speak like they do. Uh, I mean, it's very, very scary and powerful, but we then need to have really good grounding in terms of our intent. So when we're dealing with this kind of technology. What would you say we need to train people in around ethics, around values, and even recruit for those uh, qualities? Um, because I think values are very difficult to teach people if their values are, are running counter to those or you know, um, are in conflict. So I'm very curious around that whole um, area of values and ethics. This is such a complex topic, Marcus. I think that it's really important if you're an individual to make sure that when you're considering going to work for an organization that you look at the actions they have taken. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're a business leader and you are interviewing candidates, you need to look for the actions that they have taken. It's very easy for us to say, for example, that you're a lifelong learner, which in my opinion is table stakes for anyone moving forward. If you're in sales and you're not a lifelong learner, I will tell you that you're going to have a very difficult time in the next few years and arguably in the rest of your career, particularly given this explosion of generative AI. So you, it's easy to say, hey, I value lifelong learning. But if you look at their history and they, they 
haven't done anything to upskill themselves on a regular basis. They're not engaging on LinkedIn. Look for those things that show that they're actively looking to be involved in a community that elevates their understanding, elevates their awareness. Okay, so those are things that that I think help to ground us in the actions that people take. And the reason that I care so much about the actions is because that's where you get to what do people actually value and therefore what are the things that are going to likely be ethically in their wheelhouse versus outside of what is normal to them. So I like to ground everything in actions and behaviors. And if you see somebody that, or if you feel like you need to stretch yourself from an actions perspective, you know, really think about being purposeful about changing the way that you behave because our actions directly impact the way that we think and feel moving forward. And so from an ethical perspective, I challenge organizations to identify really clearly what they value, and then let's put that into what does that look like in behaviors? Let's really drill into what the behaviors are that you expect people to uh, present so that you are ethically aligned, because ethics can be such a squishy topic if you can directly align that what you want to achieve from an ethical perspective with the actions that you expect both from yourself and from your organization, that's the most practical way to ground ethics in reality. Help me understand this. So many boards appear to be making very important arbitrary decisions based on line items on a report um, and on a spreadsheet. How can AI be used to turn boards into far more effective units that serve the company, serve the customer, serve the employees? So one of the things that I think is possible with artificial intelligence is to enable boards to ask questions. So imagine this. Imagine that instead of a report that is polished and shiny and exactly what they what the individuals in the organization want to present to the board what if the board had the opportunity to use their typical natural language to query the data of the organizations that they are responsible for so what if they could ask any question they wanted to of the data from the organizations what could they learn that would change the insights that they have about the organization okay. at a deeper understanding level? So what are the blind spots that you see with that incredible range of experience that you've had that the AI could help them interrogate and uh, start you know, coming up with better answers so that they can make better and more well-informed decisions? I think that in general, there is a disconnect between what happens at the executive level and the information that the boards have to act upon. There is a need for a deeper and more nuanced understanding of the happenings inside the organization. 
it's not that the executives are trying to, it's not subreviews. They're they're not trying to prevent that understanding. They are doing their best to surface the information that is needed for boards to behave in, in the most effective manner. The challenge is in the questions that are that need to be posed from a board perspective and what we're actually presenting through old school data and analytics methods. So again, at right now from a data and management perspective, what we see happening is back to that, we have a coder, they sit at the computer, they tell it exactly what information they want it to pull and create. Now, Let's pivot that to what is now possible with ChatGPT plus Code Interpreter, okay? So Code Interpreter allows for a connection of a huge data source directly to ChatGPT, and you can use typical natural language to type in your question, and the ChatGPT engine will use all of that data plus what it knows from its training, from its model training, to answer those questions in a natural language format. So I'm extrapolating that to the possibilities for boards. What if they could do that and they could ask any question that they wanted to, they could get the nuanced answers that they want without somebody having to tell it exactly what to output. What's really interesting me around this is, you know, so often we hear that, you know, the targets have just been increased and it's done in an arbitrary manner because they basically say, we're just going to whack 30% off without any rhyme or reason and never having looked at whether the territory can sustain it, whether that salesperson has the capacity uh, to be able to do it, either because of aptitude, competence or resource. And so, so often, I think decisions are made because the decisions are made lazily. And I think AI gives us the opportunity to uh, look deeply into the inner workings of our business. And you touched on it earlier about dealing with really complex problems. Well, I think what AI brings us is the potential to start taming wicked problems, which by definition are insoluble. And you can fix bits of them. You might not be able to fix all of it at once. But if you shift your perception and you move time so that instead of trying to do everything in a year or two years, you maybe look at five years. Well, what if we did it in five or seven? Will the world stop spinning? What if we ended up in the same place, but without creating hell on earth? And I think that's the, that's the opportunity that I really don't want us to miss. Because the ability to help with forecasting, scenario planning, territory evaluation, growth potential, identifying gaps in the market. I've been using this on a regular basis for the last three months. uh, And it's paying dividends because I found gaps in my competition's offering that mean I don't have to compete. I can be an augmentation. I can be a build on what they do. So they don't have to see me as a threat because I don't do any of their stuff. It's hilarious. You know, identifying um, non-customers, you know, people who could be buying, but no one's selling to, and there's no competition. So in my own history as, as a, uh, an enterprise seller, I was once given a quota that it was quite literally impossible for me to, to hit. I was given a quota based off of a, a set territory, 
And I, because I knew my territory exceptionally well, I was able to create the data that backed me up that there was actually no possible way to hit that particular quota. As a result of that, I got quota relief in that particular year. Now, it took an extreme level of detailed understanding and an ability to present that in a very numbers-oriented fashion to build my case. So I basically had to build a business case for the fact that that my territory number was uh, unattainable in that particular situation. So if I extrapolate this and I and I take it all the way up to a board level and I and they do have to do something like make cuts for example, I truly believe that if there was a clearer understanding at that level of nuance about individual territories, about uh, overall geographies, et cetera, if they had that level of understanding, I believe that the changes that they would pursue are different. I don't think that they are that they want to do arbitrary cuts. I believe that they don't have the information they need to make really high quality decisions. Uh, and this is despite the fact that we have spent so many years focused on data and analytics. Now, the good news is that all these years that we've been focusing on data and analytics, we've learned a lot. We have some really solid infrastructure in place. We have uh, we have a ton of data against which to train models to turn this kind of capability loose. So to your point about the super complex problems, this is one of those situations where I believe that we can create models that are both external data informed, because you know if you're a board member, you've got to have a massive understanding of the macro external environment as well as an incredibly detailed micro understanding of your internal environment in order to make truly high quality, sound, long-term strategic decisions. And so I believe that that complexity is, is absolutely possible for artificial intelligence to help us to solve. Well, what's amazed me is if you are patient enough you can produce two months' work in half an hour. I produced a 48-week program, and this was on my first week of playing with it, so it wasn't very good. But because of the way I structured it, it spat out a 48-week interleaved scaffolded training program um, with modules that tied, tied into previous sessions. There were frameworks all the way along uh, and uh, milestones all the way along to ensure that all this learning was brought together. There was pre-work and post-work, um, pre-testing and post-testing. There were individual exercises, pairing exercises and group exercises, and then thought labs and practice labs. Um, and all of that took around 12 minutes. Now, I couldn't do that before. I've never been able to organize stuff. The one gripe I do have with it is that at the moment, you can't search your prompts but I'm pretty sure that that's only a matter of time. So what I'm uh, very interested, again, let's take this board um, conversation a little bit further. In terms of helping to design the business of the future that you intend to become, how can people use this amazing tool 
in order to help them scenario plan and create a, a clear, certain pathway and remove the uncertainty. Because what, what we know is that wherever you create uncertainty, people automatically default to the worst case scenario. And that's exactly what's happening with all the you know, fury now. So how do we create that certainty? How do we create an environment that people feel safe in when we're using AI? Um, and in particular, in terms of building the culture and the team. So the first thing I want to do is remind everyone that do not put anything that is intellectual property or private information into public facing large language models. So for example, I was speaking with a researcher last week who he and his partner had disagreed about what they wanted to name their research paper, obviously wasn't published yet. And so the partner copied the entire paper into ChatGPT and asked it what would be the best name for the paper. So that is not ideal. Because, <laughs> because that information is has now you have you have provided that as additional training data. What that means is that somebody could query and get results from your study, get insights from your study as and you haven't even published it yet. So you never want to put anything that is intellectual property or that is private information into a public facing large language model. So I just want to be really clear about that. Now, there are lots of things that you can do instead. If you're in an enterprise environment, you can create an API that would prevent that exchange of that bi-directional exchange of information. You can create your own environments. There, there are many technical solutions to this situation, but I always want to grant that caution. So if you want to do something that is specific to a customer, that is information that only you have, that is not public information, then you want to anonymize it, just, you know, pull up a document and do a find and replace and replace the customer's name and anything that would, uh, that would identify them you know, just replace it with a company XYZ before you copy it into ChatGPT or any other language model to work from it, do work with it there. And then when you copy it back, you can just do the cop, you know, you can just do the yeah. find and replace and move on. But I just want to make sure that people understand that you should never do that. One of the biggest questions on the table, in my opinion, from an ethics perspective, intellectual property rights were were completely disregarded when these models were originally trained. So we're going to see lots of things happen with this from a legal perspective, but I want to make sure that people understand that. Now, once you understand that, you have the opportunity to really dig into how can I use this tool to change the outcomes that I want to create for myself, for my customer, for my organization. And the way that we do that is using our human creativity truly in partnership with artificial intelligence. One of the biggest tools that I love to use is look for plugins for these large language models. So there are, there are just tons of these plugins available that help you to get things that are very specific to your situation. So plugins for large language models can do things like 
bridge the gap, bring in current web results to supplement the fact that ChatGPT stopped in September of 2021 with their data. You can bring in plugins that will supplement with current web data. You can use plugins that do things like interact with other data sets. So you can bring in your own data. You can create your own your own training model using some uh, some very specific tools that are created right now. So for example, imagine that you have 20 different documents that are very specific to your customer's situation or your industry situation. You can use tools that are available on the market today to train a model just on your data set and then ask it natural language questions. Super powerful stuff that's very practical, very pragmatic. So when I project forward into what is possible for boards to use that kind of capability, I envision them having their own models, their own language models that pull in that external data that will enrich their their internal knowledge plug in what they know from their internal data and then be able to query that for their nuanced questions to help them to project into the future how to build the organization of the future that they want to build. Okay, so this then brings us to the next thing, which is the, all the scaremongering about it will take our jobs. Um, yeah, my, my position on this is, yes, absolutely, some people will lose and many people will gain. And with every technology that's ever come along that's been groundbreaking, there's been an awful lot of uh, throwing the hands in the air and expecting the sky to fall on your head, and we adapt. So in terms of the business of the future, I have an optimistic view that many enterprises will no longer have the oxygen to be able to survive because they won't be agile enough. And what will happen is um, lots of small providers who are really good at something will start working together in ecosystems. And I'm very confident that the technology for cooperation, which um, has been catalyzed by um, the uh, acceleration that we got through digitization through the pandemic and the lockdown, it's forced people to look at cooperation. And so partnering has become more popular as a mechanism for getting to senior decision makers because you can't get through to CEOs and or C-suite because they don't pick up the phone, they don't look at their email because we've deafened them uh, and blinded them to all of that stuff because of the noise. And so you have to go through partners, or you have to go through a third party who has their ear. The capacity to map relationships you know, there's technologies out there already, you know, connect the dots, for example, on LinkedIn as a plugin, and you can see who your network is. And all of this stuff is there. So I'm really interested in how the bus- businesses will be different in the future, because I-, I know people today who are literally one man armies. I mean, you know, someone like Justin Michael is 120 times more productive every day. Pat Joyce, Ryan Rice, these guys, 120 times more productive than the average rep. On a daily basis, because they are in partnership with AI. 
in partnership with AI. That is the whole key to it. You have to think of yourself as being in partnership with AI on an individual level, on a business level, on an industry level. You've got to think of yourself in partnership with AI. And what does that mean to your business model? So I lead these conversations with boards and with executives all the time about what does this mean to your business model? Where are your sources of competition now that perhaps didn't exist before? So to your point about uh, we have seen a democratization of access to artificial intelligence. What this means is that individuals and small businesses now have the same level of technology capability that has been really relegated to the bigs in the past. Yes. So now you take these individuals or these small organizations and you who are agile by nature, and you empower them with this crazy powerful generative AI uh, technology. And so now they have both agility and the same quality of high-end tech that only their biggest competition had in the past. So now those organizations who are large and have had a, a foothold, even arguably an unshakable foothold prior to this, in their particular industry or space, that is no longer a secured location for them. Competition can come from much smaller entities now than it has ever been possible in the past. So this democratization of access to AI, in my mind, is the thing that is disrupting the classic business models and could very well upend the big players and us, we could see some dis across industries, some of the biggest players displaced as a result of this access to AI. Well, the, the future of technology is going to be more and more complex. It's not going to become simpler. And a bank now has somewhere between 800 and 1,000 applications running at any one time. That's a lot of vendors. The CTO or the CIO and their department are probably run ragged, legal are run ragged, finance are run ragged. And what people want is not technology, but we are all technology businesses now. Um, I, I could not do what I do anywhere near as effectively without you know, Zoom, for example. I'd have to physically go out and meet people or do it by telephone. Now, what's amazing is we have an opportunity to rethink the way we do business, I believe. I think this is the cusp of a renaissance. So in the final minutes, let's just explore what might be possible if we were to rethink and not choose to get involved with the quarterly business model, with private equity. And what we were thinking about was how we can use AI to help us find ecosystem partners and then club together to work in partnership with the customer and the AI against their problem. So I see a future that is filled with specific large language models that are built to address either a common problem that are, a, that are built to address a particular industry and a common problem within that industry. So I, I am envisioning what is going to happen with large language models 
that are designed to solve four specific problems. And they are trained on data that will help to solve that specific problem. So imagine that we were able to coalesce partners, partners, customers, even potentially policymakers around a particular problem that needed to be solved. And we crafted a large language model that is trained off of data that would that should inform that problem. And then we turn loose all of the incredibly talented and creative humans that know about that problem and all of the different diverse perspectives that they can bring to the table to ask it questions in a way that only each one of us can ask questions. And so this is what I try to tell people about prompting. Yes, you can learn from others. And yes, you can prompt a system just like others prompt a system. But what I want to encourage you to do is to remember who you are as an individual, as a unique contributor, as a business, and what your business's uh, vision and mission is. And I want you to think about prompting in that way that is really truly in your unique voice because you will get a different answer to a problem than someone else will because they see the problem differently and they ask a different question. So yes, we can learn from one another and then build on that. So imagine that we would take all of these super intelligent, different background, different perspective individuals and turn them loose on a large language model that was designed to help to solve a particular problem. That, in my mind, is a complete alteration of the way that businesses work and cooperate or compete in today's environment. I think we're going to see it completely upended by this creation of language models that are designed for specific problems and combining that with the creativity of people who are informed to answer, to ask questions against those models. What would you recommend people read, watch, listen to, to try and get up to speed with what AI is really about and its potential? Well, I guess I'll do a self-plug here, Marcus. You know, I I talk and write about this all the time, so you can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, I also have a website, drlisa.ai, where I blog on these concepts, I try very hard to make the way that I write accessible, the way that I speak accessible, so that anybody feels comfortable when they come away from listening, it doesn't sound like technical gibberish, that it comes away with a very business-minded approach and what they can do to move that forward. So I really encourage you to engage with me. Uh, There are many other thought leaders in this space. I love Allie Miller. She writes brilliantly. She is on every social platform, but it's Allie K. Miller is uh, is a fantastic thought leader in this space. Andreas Welch, he is a fantastic thought leader with regard to how to put artificial intelligence into practice in a business environment. Love, love everything that he has to say. There are a litany of others in this space Marcus, but, and then of course, you know, Biggs, it's always entertaining to follow Elon Musk. Uh, it's always entertaining to follow Andrew Ng. 
There's interesting people in this space. It really depends on what it is that you want to take away from it. Okay, and I'm going to do a plug as well. So ChatGPT for Sellers, six parts. Myself and Moeed Amin, who is a neuroscientist who was heavily involved in the original development of Challenger Sale, and he's interviewed 420 C-suite executives about why they buy and why they don't. And we built all of that stuff into our program. So if that's something that is of interest to you and you want to speak to powerful decision makers who don't pick up the phone or pick up email, then uh, plug into that. And you will get lots of practical help uh, because GPT now allows you to share so we can do live um, practice labs uh, with your prompts, uh, all of us guiding um, as we go. So, Lisa, how can people get hold of you? So the easiest way is to either follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, it's Palmer Lisa C is the easiest way to find me on LinkedIn. And then uh, Lisa at drlisa.ai is my email. Welcome to reach me on that. And my mobile phone is available online as well. It, I ask that you text me first because I do <laughs> I, I do have a screener on my, my phone. Uh, so I, I just want to make sure I understand who I'm talking to before I, before I pick up and chat with you. But I'd be happy to do that as well. So I'd love to interact with your audience, Marcus. I've, I always enjoy our conversations. Likewise. And I, yeah, please do get in touch with Lisa. Ask her questions. Stretch her. Challenge her. Uh, disagree if you, if you don't agree with her. And, and in, also get in touch with me. If you're looking for coaching, if you're a principled seller who's sick to death of having to sacrifice your values in order to make quota, you don't have to. There is a better way. And in the chat, there's a link to book 15 minutes for free. And honestly, um, I'm not that scary. So if you want to get in touch, then please do. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.